Climate change is perhaps the most significant topic I will discuss on this platform. Implementing sustainable practices has become more desperately necessary than ever before. In assessing ways that I can make a difference, I found many individualistic options. I could reject a monoculture lawn, I could drive an electric car, implement zero waste strategies, go vegan, embrace minimalism, vote, or divest from cor corrupt corporate conglomerates. However, I found some of these practices lacking in substantive value because the ability to implement these practices assumes that everyone has a similar financial baseline with the possible exception of veganism, which we'll discuss in a minute. A YouTuber named Tiana, who goes by the handle Tiana Empowers, captured how I feel about this in her video on sustainable and zero waste practices. She describes the difficulty of a complete lifestyle overhaul for those living below the poverty line or paycheck to paycheck. Her content inspired me to think about what infrastructure changes are needed to make sustainable changes accessible for all. First though, I'd like to talk to Tiana about why sustainable practices are not currently accessible to everyone. Thanks for coming on today. How are you doing? So I'm doing really great today and I'm happy to be a part of your podcast. Oh, thanks so much. Um, I'm excited to talk to you today. I really love watching your video about sustainability. Um, so in your video, you mentioned the difficulty of eating ethically for those living below the poverty line or in food deserts and rural areas. Can you elaborate on that? Yeah, so one of the things that I think is really important to mention and uplift anytime I can when talking about sustainability and um, ethical consumption is that there is no ethical consumption under capitalism. So a lot of people... Um, kind of think that, again, individual things that people can do can help the earth in any kind of way, when in actuality, it's we have to really change all the different systems we work within to actually have a change. But it's still important to boycott when you can, especially with strategy. And I think a lot of times we don't use strategy. We just individually do things without um, connecting and being a part of a bigger a bigger movement, or even local movements. But, um, yeah, I found this really good thread on Twitter that had a bunch of really interesting links about how meat and dairy industries target low-income areas of color, and they pollute those areas with um, their factories and, you know, putting those um, closer to people who are low-income and people of color. They also try to market and get lower-income people to consume their products that are typically more cancerous to the body. So, again, Twitter is my favorite resource for information when I need it, and actually clicking the links that they have and checking if those sorts of, those um, sites are credible to, you know, continue reading information off of. But um, that's kind of some of the things that I would like to say about low-income and people of color being a part of this movement. Um, I, I completely agree, and I think I've seen information like that, too. Um, in terms of, like, veganism, a lot of people say, well, just buy chickpeas or lentils or beans, and that's, like, an option that a lot of people say, like, oh, okay, anybody can do, but it can be really hard, I think, if you live in a food desert or in a super rural area, especially, like, in the mountains where you might, might not be able to drive super far. Do you see this as a problem, possibly, and have you have you experienced or have you seen this experience for other people? Yeah, so it's 
It's one of those things where I think some people just need to realize that changing dietary and eating habits can be difficult for people, especially people of different cultures. I know, like, yeah, you know, I know some people enjoy lentil lentil um, soups and all of that of all different cultures. You can make curries, different lentil soups and stuff like that. But at the same time, I think that people are just kind of shouting this information at people instead of working with people to actually taste these new, um, um, yes, <laughs> yeah, vegan alternatives. Because, like, I, if you tell me, like, you know, only to consume chickpeas, lentils, beans, or rice, I'm going to be like, no. But <laughs> yeah, if you, like... Yeah. If you, like, came to my house, we cooked together, and you taught me some recipes, and I I let you know, like, okay, I think this tastes good. I wouldn't eat this, but maybe I'll eat this if it was in a different way. Like, we live in the United States of America. There are Jamaican foods, South Asian foods, Italian foods. But how can all of these different alternatives be incorporated into those cultural dishes? I think that is kind of what will make a lot of these things easier because I do think that some of these things that you mentioned can be easily accessible, but people just might not buy it. Oh, yeah, definitely. I completely agree. And I think, like, you know, with sustainability, like, influencers, a lot of times that kind of, like, speaking to you instead of, like, working with you, is mm-hmm. I've seen a lot of that as well. Would you say that some of the other sustainability practice, practices I mentioned earlier um, for our conversation are also difficult for people living below the poverty line? Yes. I think when you're struggling to meet basic needs, that's all you can focus on. And I think sometimes people think that, you know, when you when you are poor, it's your fault. And I think maybe some people have that mind state and they don't understand all the different reasons why people are poor and all the different reasons why people um, continue to stay poor when it seems like we have opportunities to um, come out of poverty. So I would just say that sustainability practices, until they acknowledge systemic issues, I think, and and they acknowledge um, generational wealth gaps and include that in their politics, I think they will have a way better time connecting with people who are below the poverty line by helping like eliminate people living below the poverty line. Oh yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah. And do you think like as far as changing the infrastructure for society to make sustainable living more accessible for everyone, what are some of like your ideas of how we could actually change the infrastructure and, you know, not I guess like to the point of like not letting anyone, not having anybody who's living below the poverty line. Mm-hmm. Um what kind of ways do you see that we could like start at that today? So honestly, there are times where I feel really motivated and I'm thinking, I think about like how organizing people and how, um, you know, rattling, um, rallying for federal, state, and local change, but also within organizing is that public education, but I honestly think that's kind of where a lot of this change has to come. It has to come from that public education in a way and some storytelling. I hear about storytelling all the time in my line of work because you can't just always present people with facts. Sometimes those facts have to be within a compelling story. So I honestly think we should invest way more in public education and not public education meaning like schools, but honestly how we are learning every day in all different types of ways and in, in institutional schools. 
So I would say that's my first one, just getting that knowledge out there to different people and actually making ourselves vulnerable to have these kinds of conversations. But then I also, again, a lot of this comes to me when I think of it as just like federal legislation that makes things, um, makes things, that penalizes people for doing a lot of unethical things and also reenfranchise people and allows for more people's voices to be heard. So I think it goes back to that. And I think some people don't always see the connection between sustainability and voting, sustainability and legislation and change like that. But that's where I think a lot of um, the changes will come. Oh, definitely. And do you think, aside from just like our political structure, like as something I came across um, is Marie Bushen's concept of libertarian municipalism. Where it's basically like freedom is given from public assemblies that can actually become decision making bodies. And its concept is that the way we look at politics can be different. Like we can reorient it from top down to grassroots. Do you think that's a concept that could have a positive impact in terms of sustainability, or would you kind of want to work within the existing infrastructure? So I believe in grassroots movements, and I believe in working in a alternative structure than what we have today, but I would like to look more into what exactly a libertarian municipalism is, because libertarian, when I hear that word, I get a little Oh, yeah. (laughs) You know, it's like freaking like Rand Paul is a no. Right. (laughs) No, his idea is a little bit more like deconstructing the economy, I guess. Um, He kind of falls in like... I guess you could say um, it's kind of like a radical leftist. (laughs) Okay, okay. I had a feeling, but because I'm like, I'm always getting used to different terms and, you know, when they're used in different phrasing that they can mean something completely different. So um, thanks for um, clarifying that. But, yeah, I think that, again, it goes back to capitalism, too. It's like there is no ethical consumption under capitalism, and I think that's what that this person is trying to say, that we need – have grassroots, actually have societies that are accountable to grassroots movements, because we have a bunch of them, but our elected officials are not accountable to them. They see them happening on Twitter or on the news, and they just go and do whatever they want as if those movements are not happening. So I think that's an important thing to note. So I would definitely agree, and grassroots movements wholeheartedly, but it takes a lot of work and energy and a lot of, um, I don't want to say social skills, but it's going to take a lot of people to open up, and our society has definitely closed a lot of us off. So I want people to think about those soft skills that we have to have. Oh, yeah, yeah. Movements, yeah. And do you think, talking about, like, a universal financial baseline, that kind of concept that a lot of these people have, do you think it applies mm-hmm. to things other than just sustainability? And I, of course, you kind of talked about that. There's no ethical consumption um, under capitalism. But also, like, do you think that what are some of the other things that are very frustrating and painful about the assumption that we're all sharing this sort of similar financial baseline? That's kind of in popular culture, too, and not, mm-hmm. just, not just in, like, the infrastructure politically that exists. I think what's so frustrating and painful about it is that people don't, they're not questioning what they've learned and the information that has been fed to them. And that's a little scary to me. I think a lot of us have, um, we believe in myths 
that were created in American history and we don't actually know what is going on, even when we're living that experience. Like I know so many people who grew up similar to me, like low income, but still have no problem with billionaires. And it's just like, you know, you'll never be able to be one, right? Like you don't actually have that possibility. So I think, again, it goes to kind of the myths and propaganda that we've all consumed. And it's just painful when people blame other people for their own, for their own, um, I won't even say for their own issues, but for their income or for whatever hardship that they're going through. And I think black Americans specifically face that a lot. And, and, and it's because, it is because, again, it's because in education that, like, you know, even, and this is a conversation that I see on social media a lot, but a lot of immigrant communities, you know, they come to the United States and sometimes they benefit. They're able to come have this fruitful, you know, fruitful and economic life that some black Americans who, you know, have been here for years because of chattel slavery don't experience. And people don't understand the systemic racism that specifically affects certain groups and that generational trauma. So that's what's hurtful to me because people don't give people, they don't give people the benefit of the doubt and they don't see the humanity in other people because we're all promised this kind of American dream and some people are able to take advantage of it. So, I mean, that's constantly what we're combating. We're constantly trying to let people, try to make people see that, you know, black, low-income people are human and that we aren't the reason why we are in the kind of economic stratosphere we are today. I completely agree. That's Yeah, I think that's, like, perfect encapsulation of what's so frustrating about our system and, like, that assumption of a baseline. But thank you so much for joining me today. It was really great talking to you, Tiana. And um, I look forward to seeing more of your content online. Thanks so much for uh, answering all my questions. No problem. Thanks. I really enjoyed it. Oh, thanks. Uh, yeah, that's the, like, wrap-up. Bookchin's theory of social ecology and proposal of libertarian municipalism promises to reharmonize the relationship between first nature, natural space, and second nature, societal space. Bookchin conceptualizes that the root of our ecological problems lie in the hierarchical foundation of our society. He proposes that the hierarchical relationships that lie at the heart of our society are what has given rise to the push to dominate the natural world. Bookchin views conscious consumerism as a band-aid on a much deeper societal wound. This wound is reinforced with trade for, for profit, industrial expansion for its own sake, and the identification of progress with corporate self-interest. Bookchin promotes the collective rejection of corporate, state, and bureaucratic incursions on human communities. While conscious consumerism can still make an impact, Bookchin explains that the problems inherent in green capitalism are multifold. He states that the adoption of ecologically sound practices places a morally concerned entrepreneur at a fatal disadvantage in a competitive relationship, and the competitor, operating without moral constraints, is able to produce cheap commodities at lower prices and can reap much higher benefits um, and can obtain more products. Bookchin postulates that moving away from consumerism and towards collective self-sustainable practice will limit the capability of corporate conglomerates and corrupt politicians to exploit the earth for natural resources.
This model will debilitate industries that subsist only on the exploitation of the lower class. For example, sweatshops, the oil industry. Wilson's ideas may be difficult to apply on a national and global scale without significant disruption and destruction of existing infrastructure. However, it is already being implemented with great success on a small grassroots basis through the concerted effort of passionate individuals. Future Economy Collective in Blacksburg, Virginia is a great example of Maria Bookchin's theory and practice. The Future Economy Collective is a space created by Molly Graham, Lauren Malhotra, and Gretchen D. that focuses on community building and supporting low-income individuals in their area. So thank you for taking the time to talk with me. How are you all doing today? We're good. Yeah, doing great. Thanks for having us. How are you too? Oh, doing pretty good. I'm excited to be interviewing you guys today. Um, so I read that your collective was founded in response to the Mountain Valley Pipeline. Can you tell me more about how you established it? Yeah. Um, so first of all, for background for listening, uh, the Mountain Valley Pipeline is a massive, dangerous, fracked gas pipeline cutting through the heart of Appalachia, despite pretty much constant resistance to this project since it was first announced, um, and despite a powerful ongoing direct action campaign that staved off so much damage and destruction in the past two and a half years of construction. Um, and if folks want to know more about that fight and how to support that incredible work, check out Appalachians Against Pipelines on Facebook and Instagram. Um, but as for the question, uh, a lot of us did meet each other through that fight. Um, and the work has shown us, uh, like, the concrete need for community space like this um, as a resource for that kind of work. Yeah, um, back in 2016, I was living in Edinburgh, Scotland. And uh, there was this place called the Forest Cafe there that had a really similar structure to how we were running the Future Economy Collective. And basically that was just an all-volunteer-run uh, community-centered cafe. And uh, whenever I moved back to Blacksburg, I thought a lot about how, how much that structure would work well in this area and also how much it seemed to be something that people were always kind of talking about the idea of but not necessarily knowing how it could become a, a real tangible thing. And uh, I met Lauren and Gretchen through the Mountain Valley Pipeline Resistance Work uh, they were doing, and we all became good friends through that, and we all kind of put our skills together into forming the Future Economy Collective as it now looks today. Oh, that's, that's amazing. Um, so from your perspective, how corporate interests exploit low-income communities in the Blacksburg area, and how is the Future Economy Collective uh, helping these communities? So a big issue that, that is more specific to the Blackbird area is uh, that Virginia Tech is there. And so we face a lot of, uh, I don't know, just monopolization of the area by Virginia Tech. They take up a lot of the spaces uh, like downtown. They, they and, and there's like ripple effects for how Virginia Tech continues to expand its, their land use. Um, and continues to expand into the community. Like uh, right now, they have like plans to tear down, to like go right down the middle of the downtown area and like take out all these houses. Oh, that's awful. Um, yeah, it, and it uh, it also brings in a lot of like ripple effects of like 
even during my time living in this town, which is about six years, I've seen tons of housing, especially like specifically low-income housing, that's been torn down and replaced with student housing or very expensive living options. Um, and so having Virginia Tech here has definitely been very difficult for folks that work specifically in town. But our, our work also extends beyond Blackberg and works with a lot of the New River Valley area. Um, and we do have a lot of poverty in the surrounding areas um, and a lot of opioid addiction and uh, just kind of the usual stuff that plagues Appalachia. Um, and yeah, I mean, just like so many rural areas, uh, we're just like constantly seeing the shift. I mean, I, I've only lived in this area for about six years, I guess, maybe a little over that now. Um, but even just in that amount of time, I've seen so many uh, local like neighborhood spaces close down and be replaced by like chain restaurants or, or chain stores. Um, just like these mega corporations are doing the same thing here that they're doing everywhere, <laughs> which is like cutting out local community-centered areas and, and replacing them with these massive employers that completely treat their employees as disposable. Um, yeah, it's also true for Virginia Tech. Virginia Tech does not pay most of its workers a living wage. Like a lot of the work is in the contract work or gig work, which creates this instability. Um, and uh, yeah, I mean, it's just like, like I said, the same stuff is happening here that's happening all over the country. Yeah. There's also a, definitely an added uh, factor that since we're in a rural area, um, whenever people are pushed out of low-income housing or housing that can be accessible by public transportation, we, we just have like very limited public transportation in this area. Um, I've seen folks that have gotten removed from low-income housing and the only place that they can afford is to live in a trailer park that's on the outskirts of town that has no bus line attached to it. So then people are even further removed from uh, basic necessities and any form of community outside of the people that are directly next to them. Oh, that's terrible. And I think it brings me actually, you know, in light of the pandemic, some of the work you've been focusing on uh, includes delivering supplies to families in the New River Valley and other areas, rural areas around Blacksburg. How um, specifically have you addressed these needs? And uh, when people are coming to you, how are you, um, how does your collective address the needs of these low-income communities? Um, so the the mutual aid network we're building out here is modeled off of uh, a long history of mutual aid. Um, we're really lucky to be connected with a lot of people who have been doing this work for a long time, who've been able to advise us and uh, how to build out that kind of infrastructure here. Basically, we saw, I mean, there's, there are the fundamental flaws of this late capitalist system, which is that not only, you know, a lot of people think kind of like people falling through the cracks, but no, like the system is designed to uh, invisibilize suffering, invisibilize poverty, invisibilize um, houselessness. Uh, and it, you know, the, the wealth accumulation requires people to constantly be in economic uncertainty. And Absolutely. Um, so 
yeah, the, these mutual aid networks have existed for a long time, but obviously this crisis specifically is throwing the realities of that system into stark relief. Um, so many more people are seeing that harm than maybe ever have before, at least in you know my living memory. Uh, and because of that, we're seeing like so many new mutual aid networks crop up. And so we've been really lucky that there have been so many resources and so many people who have had experience that have been willing to share. Um, and our work is kind of designed to uh, navigate a world in which like a lot of charity is kind of defined by bureaucracy and gatekeeping. And that's something we specifically want to subvert um, with our resource distribution. We want to be, um, we want to recognize that people know what their needs are better than anyone else. Communities know what their needs are better than anyone outside of that community. Um, and we know that when we invest in one person, uh, especially a person in crisis or a family in crisis, uh, increased stability that they might have in that moment, the networks that they have built around them will also be made more resilient. Um, yeah, that's, that's kind of the framework that we're operating in. Oh, definitely. Um, and would you say that in terms of that framework, um, implementing sustainable and ethical practices, do you think in terms of also the framework of mutual aid, do you think that should also apply to how we look at sustainability in terms of like corporate conglomerates and how you know they make the lives of people who are low income difficult? And do you think collective action is a good way of addressing that and how so? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think collective action is really the only solution. Um, yeah, one thing that Molly was talking about recently was just like how much we're all ingrained or, or how much it's ingrained in us to not see ourselves as interconnected, to see ourselves as individuals, to see our success or stability as completely separate from other people's um, success, resilience, or stability. And that's just not the reality. It's not the reality that we live in. Um, and I think also individualism is a tool of, um, it's, it's a tool that's used to protect class interests. It's a tool that's used to protect status quo. And it's explicitly a tool of whiteness. Um, Absolutely. So, yeah, so like the colonized, colonizer mindset tells us that individualism is the only framework, but we know that like our interconnectedness is what defines our reality. Um, and so, yeah, I think anybody who thinks that there can be meaningful change that can come out of just like individual actions, I think is just like still stuck in that mindset. I, I completely agree. Um, and I guess also going off of that, uh, what do you think other than just individualism are the most substantial barriers to implementing not only a sustainable infrastructure, but a society that actually respects the needs of low-income communities? And how would you say, what is the best way we can de deconstruct these barriers? Um, well, I think the first thing is like a question of what sustainable infrastructure can mean. I think it can mean so many different things in so many different contexts. Um, in our context, we see ourselves as building sustainable infrastructure uh, because the project itself is rooted in community autonomy. Um, so anything, even with the best intentions, that has a top-down structure or like an imposed purpose um, is just not going to be able to adapt to changing community needs. Uh, 
for us, sustainability is resilience. Um, and how we do that is by investing in relationships and making sure that people see Southpaw and the Future Economy Collective as spaces where they can get to decide what happens and how it happens for themselves. Um, yeah, I, I think like the main barrier to that is like we were just saying, like people don't really realize how interconnected we are, and that can be that can make it difficult to build relationships and to invest in people and to make people feel like. Uh, you know, they have room to empower themselves. Um, and I think also just interconnectedness is just so often painted as weakness instead of what it is, which is strength. I think oh. it's also a lot of, um, like, scarcity thinking that we're also yeah. ingrained to believe that it's like, uh, the reality is we live in so much abundance and what we put into our communities, we, we get out of it tenfold. And I think that's why a lot of people get excited about mutual aid work. Um, both people, because no one's like directly a giver and no one's directly a recipient. Like a lot of the folks that we originally give boxes to, like meal boxes through our meal program, are people that are messaging us asking, do we need like certain diapers that they have more of? How could they help? Could they like drive? Could they do calls? Stuff like that. Um, and so it's realizing that we, we do have an abundance um, of a lot of things in the world and uh, trying to just harness that and stop thinking that like whatever people give to others they're losing instead of what they're giving to others is is going to be multiplied and returned back in, in some form whether that's like community togetherness or or whatever form. seems like you're building an incredible community space where people really can practice interconnectedness. What do you imagine for the future of this collective? And how do you see its role in establishing a cultural shift towards collective action and also towards you know, a move away from individualism? Um, I mean, something that we've been really explicit about since the beginning is our desire to model alternative economic practices, um, specifically uh, like having a space that's not rooted in the profit motive, you don't have to spend money to feel like you belong in that space, that you're welcome there. Um, explicitly non-hierarchical, so really exploring decision-making structures and ways of being together that are collaborative and don't rely on classic workplace models or classroom models that we're used to where, you know, someone's making the decisions that affect other people. Um, and then also just like prioritizing investing in people rather than disposing of them, which kind of goes back to the stuff we were saying earlier about like just like the way that exploitation uh, of of workers and of working class people um, happens, it, it treats them as disposable. And uh, what we want to embody in this space is that absolutely no one is disposable. Everyone is worth investing in. I think it's a wonderful mission, and I'm really, I, it was, it's been really great talking with all of you about your mission and about you know, this move towards a cultural shift. Um, thank you so much for your time. Yeah, thank, thank you. you. This is Hannah Braden signing off for Where's Your Wherewithal. Take care, and thanks for listening.